The church is the crown jewel of God's creation. clearly we can see what the church of Jesus Christ on earth is, then the greater love we will have to the body, the greater devotion we will have to the body. So the perhaps the best text for us to look at to understand the nature of the church is one of the t- first texts in our Bible, and that comes to us in Genesis chapter 2. You might say, well, I know Genesis chapter 2, and I never knew that that had anything to do with the church. Actually, it is one of the foundational texts that teach us about the nature of the church. I would go so far as to say that Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of the woman is the single most theologically important story of the Old Testament. That's quite a statement, but I think I can back that up. That the creation of the woman teaches us theological truths that are more important even than, for example, the the freeing of the Israelite children. So let's look at the story. Obviously, the story of the creation of the woman is intended to teach us a great deal about marriage. But we often look at the text as though that's all it's teaching us, when it's actually teaching us a great deal more. It's our habit as we look through the text of our Scripture. Hopefully, it's becoming our habit to ask questions of the text. And there's some important questions for us to ask the text as we read it this morning. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2, either in your own Bible or just take a look at the sermon notes in front of you. Genesis chapter 2, beginning from verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So here we have this theme, and the theme is going to dominate the whole passage. And the theme is, the man doesn't have a suitable counterpart. He needs a suitable counterpart. The rest of creation has a suitable counterpart, but not him. God says it's not good that man should not have this suitable counterpart. So God's good creation, he has just declared it to be lacking, missing something. The goodness of his creation is not complete. His creation is not complete because the man lacks a suitable companion, a suitable helper, a helper fit for him. That word just means corresponding to or suitable for, appropriate for. Verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So then we're told that God formed out of the ground all these animals and birds and reptiles and all the beasts of the field and everything. And we're specifically told that God formed them out of the ground. Now, depending on your interpretation of the creation account, that means that either God then created them and brought them before the man, or God had previously created them, and now he recounts to the man the bringing before them to name them. Either way, the point is the same. So God has created all these animals, all these beasts and birds and everything, and we're specifically told that God created them out of the ground. The Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. And he brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. So when he brings them to the man, two things are going to happen. Adam, the man, is to see them and he's to then call them something. What that tells to us is that he is going to, first of all, name them. In the scriptures, the naming of something means dominion over. And so when we see people being named or things being named, we we see that 
Adam names the, the animals, but we also see who names the stars. God names the stars because he is in dominion over the stars, not us. But we are in dominion over the animals. So this naming has to do with showing dominion over. So all the animals are brought to Adam, to the man, in order for him to, first of all, express dominion over them. Secondly, to see what he's going to call them. So God wants the man to see if any of these animals are suitable for him. God knows that none of the animals will be suitable for him, but God wants the man to see that none of the animals will be suitable for him. So he brings them all to Adam. He brings them all to the man. Is this a suitable one for you? Is this a suitable one for you? Is this a suitable one for you? Adam says, no, none of them are suitable for me, but he then names them all. In other words, he assigns to them their role. Their, he, he designates their character. He recognizes what they are good for and then assigns them that in the naming of them. But nothing is found that's suitable for him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So Adam correctly assessed each animal that's brought to him, correctly assessing, well, this beast would be good for pulling, or this beast might be good for this, or this this bird is, is a really good bird to listen to. They sing a really, really pretty song, whatever it may be. Whatever the man called them, that's what they were. And then verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But, and here we go again with the same theme, but for Adam, or for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the same theme again. Here's the man made in the image of God, and nothing created is a suitable companion for him. Nothing is a suitable counterpart for him. So there's this sort of a, a, a crisis almost in the story. That God created this creation, the creation is good, it's expansive and all this, except... There's this one part of the creation that does not have a suitable counterpart for it. So the good creation is not completely good yet. God has recognized that it's not good for the man to be alone. So, verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. So God does surgery. This is the first surgery. God opens Adam's flesh. Notice he opens Adam's side. It's not his leg, it's not his foot, it's not his arm or his elbow, it's his side that God opens. He opens the flesh and he removes, he doesn't break, but he removes an unbroken rib from the man. And then he closes the place back up. I fully expect when I meet Adam, he will have a scar on his side. And so he takes this rib from his flesh, closes up the flesh, verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So there's the same theme, bringing to the man for the man to declare, to assess, to name, dominion, and then also to assess the character and the nature. So he brings the woman. Now, the question that we ask at this point, before we go any further, is this. Why did God have to take the rib? That's a question that hopefully we've all asked ourselves at some point. God just made everything, every other living creature from dust. Certainly he could have made a suitable companion to the man from dust. Why did God not make the woman from dust? Why did God go through the whole trouble of putting Adam to sleep and doing the surgery and taking the rib and closing it back up in order to form the woman? Why not just make the counterpart from dust. Or for that matter, why not just make the counterpart at the beginning? 
because the suitable counterpart to Adam is two things. The counterpart to Adam is both like him and unlike him in a way that nothing else in creation is. Nothing else in creation is made from something other than dust. All the animals and reptiles and birds, plants, I would assume, everything else in creation, including the man, is made from dust. But the woman is made from man. Adam sees her. He says, finally at last. You see his excitement there. Finally at last. Flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. She is made from him. So she is both like him in a way that's more profound, more tightly connected, more closely connected than any other thing in creation. Nothing else in creation is as much like Adam as she is. But also she is very different from him because he's made from dust and she's not. So she, as Adam proclaims, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh at last, woman, Isha from Ish. He is the man, he is the Ish, she is the Isha from him. At last you can hear his excitement. At last this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Nothing is as close to my nature as she is. Yet nothing is also as different from my nature as she is. She is a fit counterpart. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's the summary statement of the account. For this reason, because woman was taken from man, that is the basis for saying man should leave his father and mother. In other words, his family relations should be set aside because there's a closer one. There's a one that's far closer, closer than any mother or father could be because this one came from him. Notice Adam didn't have a father or mother to leave. But this is given for our instruction so that we would know the woman has made so close to him, so much like his nature that nothing else in creation can correspond to that, yet she is also as different from him as everything else in creation is. She is both like him and she is unlike him. And therefore the summary statement is, therefore, because of this, a bond should be formed that supersedes all other earthly bonds. A bond should be formed that's stronger and longer lasting and more eternal than any earthly bond. Now, what is God telling us here? God is teaching us, for sure, much about marriage, but He's teaching us a whole lot more than about marriage. He's teaching us about the church. Because this is a word picture. Not that this doesn't, didn't literally happen like God narrated here, but it is also a word picture for us. God draws many word pictures for us in the Scriptures. And we understand them. God talks about, Jesus talks about lilies of the field, and we understand He's talking about God's care and providence. God talks about, or Jesus talks about, Vines, and we know he's talking about the nature of our union with Christ. He talks about uh, yeast, and we understand he's talking about sinfulness. He talks about the silliness of sheep, and we understand he's talking about the, the folly of sin. He talks about all kinds of things, and we understand it. Yet, here is what I would submit is the greatest, the most important word picture of Scripture that we often miss because we think it's only about marriage. Paul connects the dots for us. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, he quotes word for word the summary statement of the word picture. And then he spells it out for us. This mystery, we know what what a mystery is. A mystery is something that previously we didn't know, we didn't understand until God told it to us, until God showed us what it is. This mystery is not only a mystery that God has now shown us. Paul says "This this is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and cling, hold fast to his wife. Paul says that's about the church. The rib is about the church. The putting him to sleep is about the church. How is it about the church? The woman is more like the man than anything else in creation, yet she is more unlike the man than anything else in creation. So also our Christ, our Messiah, is more like us than anything else in creation. We share the same nature. He has given to us his new nature, his new human nature, yet He also is the nature of God, more unlike us than anything else in creation, yet more like us in creation. And at the same time, he forms a bond with us that is far deeper and far more important than any earthly bond, supersedes any other bond, the only bond, the only relationship that is eternal, and that is the relationship that is pictured for us in the man and the woman, the Isha that came from Ish, from Ish's own rib, from his own side. And then we look to the cross and we see in John 19, the Savior who has just passed his earthly life, has just given up his earthly life, and he has become the sin that he needed to become in order to make us to be the righteousness of God, to give birth to the church. And we see the Savior hanging from the cross and the soldiers come to break the legs of those hanging in order that they would die more quickly. And they come to Jesus and they see that he's already dead. And a soldier takes his spear and pierces his And from his side flow water and blood. The same gospel writer back in chapter 3 at the beginning of his gospel quotes the Savior saying that spiritual life only comes by the water and the blood. And from the cross, Jesus, whose every word from the cross is about the church. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. I thirst. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. On and on. Every word that Jesus speaks from the cross is about the church because from the cross he is birthing the church. Like the man in his sleep was birthing the woman. The first Adam gives birth to Isha. The second Adam gives birth to the church. The crown jewel of God's creation, you have been told, is man. It is not man. The crown jewel of God's creation is the church. Man was made in the image of God and we bear the image of God, but the church is made up of image bearers who have been twice born, twice created. The church is the crown jewel of God's creation. Then our gospel writers will go on to say, quoting this same passage, they will say, what God has joined together, let not man ever separate. We share a sameness with our Savior, and we share a differentness with our Savior. The sameness that we share 
is a sameness that nothing else in creation can come close to. Nothing else in creation can touch. Just like the woman was taken from the man and therefore shared with him something that couldn't be shared with anything else in creation, so also we share the nature of our Messiah. Yet, we are not him, and he is not us. And there is an otherness, there is a differentness that also distinguishes our relationship. The first Adam was given a counterpart of supreme suitability, one who both shared his nature in the most direct and intimate way, while also being utterly distinct in nature. Likewise, the second Adam, Jesus, also births a counterpart of supreme suitability that is simultaneously one in nature and distinct in nature. 